pretty exciting, huh? Yeah, so good. Uh, really encouraging to my heart to see young men where we know the, the world's pulling and the heart can be pulling to see the Spirit of God working in young men's heart. It gives me great uh, gratitude for our children's ministry, our middle school ministry, and our high school ministry as well that is not just babysitting and not just entertaining, but teaching them about walking with Jesus. So really, really grateful. Let's thank the Lord again. All right, I'm looking for my friends, Tom and Nancy Wolf. There they are. I couldn't quite spot you. Sorry, I would have given you the heads up. Some of you know Tom and Nancy. They're commended missionaries, spent uh, almost 20 years in South Africa. Is that correct? Almost 20, uh, doing church planting, and then in recent years have been involved in outreach to the unreached in South Asia and the Middle East. After two and a half decades of serving cross-culturally, as some of our commended missionaries, now they are stepping aside from their missionary service and stepping into a role here as our new pastor of shepherding here at CFC beginning in January 1. So excited to have Tom and Nancy as part of our team. Yeah, it's been a, a great story for uh, myself and how the Lord brought Tom and Nancy a part of my life from their very first day of their visit here at CFC and, and to see that journey. And it's a reminder really for all of us. We, we never really always know what the Lord is doing in our lives, but he is always working and he's always working for good. And so it's been a privilege to be a part of this journey uh, Tom will give leadership to our family groups, to our equipping classes, to our local impact, and whatever else we come up with along the way. That's what, uh, no, no, it's in writing what we're going to ask him to do. And, and Nancy's, <laughs> we can change it though. Uh, <laughs> I said it publicly, so. Uh, and Nancy, such a valuable, that we're not hiring her, we're just going to utilize her. <laughs> How about that? Uh, such a great disciple of women and so involved in our counseling ministry. So really Thanks. grateful for their participation in our team going forward. Do you give them a big hand? Thanks. Thanks. <clears throat> Really one of the great stories of uh, the headship of Jesus at CFC is it's, it's almost a rarity that we bring someone to be part of our team that God has not already placed within our church. Uh, almost every one of us on staff, part of our story has been, uh, we were here in another role, maybe not even a ministry role, but another role uh, participating in the church and the Holy Spirit raising up to take that role. That was certainly my story and Jackie's story in joining this team a jillion years ago. And so really grateful for God's continued leadership. Join me, if you would, in Colossians chapter three in your Bible. Colossians chapter three. We are together uh, moving through this series of maturing as a Christ follower. Big picture, uh, we become a Christ follower, we mature as Christ followers, and we multiply 
Christ follows. That's kind of the journey that the Lord has all of us on. First moving from dead in our sins to alive in Jesus, to then growing in Jesus, to then sharing Jesus so that others begin to follow Jesus. So we are in this section of growing up, moving from believers who act like babies, sometimes in very negative ways, to to maturing into what the Bible describes in this way, into the measure, the stature, which belongs to the fullness of Christ. To be mature in our faith. And there are very clear expressions of maturity in faith. We demonstrate this place of maturing in Christ by a visual of a table. It's because when we become children of God, we're made part of a family. The Bible calls us this. The visual is one body. What we learned last week is it's, or two weeks ago, it's one body but many members. And every member has a part to play. And maturity is when that member plays the part. Because when you play the part that God has given you to play in this body, and when I say member, don't think church membership, don't think a piece of paper, think you by faith have been brought into the family of God. That makes you a member of this body. As a member of this body, when you play the part that God has given you, we all benefit. And when you don't, we all suffer. That's the way God made the body. But then we looked at last week, that the most important thing that happens around this table, the most important thing about our relationship is a four-letter word, and it is love. Maybe you'll remember, love is, here, here are the things that we said, love is the greatest, above all, beyond all, defining mark of a follower of Jesus. The most important thing that happens in our relationship is that we would love one another. That's not my idea. That's exactly what the scripture says. When I give you that statement, that's the biblical statement. Love is the greatest, above all, beyond all, defining mark of follower of Jesus. Now here, this next statement is my statement. I think it's true in scripture, but this is not exactly what the scripture says doesn't say differently, it just doesn't say this. But here's what I think about. That love is the greatest, and the greatest expression of love is forgiveness. Love is the greatest. Love is above all, beyond all. And the greatest expression of that love is forgiveness. So this morning, simply looking at what I'm simply calling the high hurdle of forgiveness. You know what I mean by the high hurdle? (laughs) Sometimes it's hard to clear. And sometimes we look at it and we go, what? Too high. I'm not going there. Or we try it and we whack our knee on it and go, see, didn't work. It's a high hurdle. I believe it is the greatest expression of love. And let me demonstrate why. You're open to Colossians 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, it'll be up here, but I'd love for you to see it in the scriptures. We're gonna look at simply these three verses. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on 
a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, you have a complaint against your spouse? You have a complaint against a sibling? You have a complaint against a boss, a coworker, a neighbor? You see what I'm saying? There's brokenness there. And let me keep this very real. Some of you are heading into a Christmas season and you're gonna be forced to go to a family party with people that you're like, That's, you don't know high hurdle until you've met them, duck. The funny thing is you may be the them, just remember that. <laughs> Whoever they are, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love. So forgiveness, but even greater, love. Put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. All right, so we established love is the greatest. And love, here's my rationale. Love is the perfect, this is what the scripture says, is the perfect bond of unity. In other words, when we love there's unity. When we don't love, <laughs> there's disunity. Love is the greatest because it is the perfect bond of unity. That's the foundational statement. Here's the reality. No one will be loved perfectly, right? As much as you love your spouse, you don't love them perfectly. As much as you love your kids, you don't love them perfectly. No, you have not been loved perfectly. So if love is the perfect bond of unity, but no one is loved or loves perfectly, guess what? We don't have, we won't have unity unless what? unless there is forgiveness. See, refusal to forgive will cause brokenness to remain because the love is the greatest. We don't love perfectly. And therefore, we don't love perfectly. There's brokenness. And apart from forgiveness, that brokenness will remain. Now you may say, well, we've just learned to live in that Brokenness. We've just learned to get along. We've learned to kind of walk around it, to ignore it. But it's not what God intended. So uh, can I acknowledge, church, love is the most important thing that happens in our relationships with one another. But because we will never ever until we enter into eternity love perfectly, actually the real measure of our relationship will be whether we forgive one another. We've all been to weddings where a bride and a groom have made vows to one another. And they are the ultimate expressions of how I'm going to love you as Christ loves me and you're going to do everything. And have you ever sat there and honestly thought, 
Oh, those big liars. <laughs> now you probably, no, no. But if you were to think of it rationally, you would go, that's nice, that sounds good, it's right, but it's just not real. <laughs> because at the end they go, until death do us part. We really say, until this service is over, and then it's going to get real. That's, that's the, that'd be the most honest vow. I will love you until this service gets over, and then it's going to get a little hairy. You say, that's a terrible view of marriage. It's, it's the reality. Nobody loves their spouse perfectly. So if you're married, can I call you to this? The real measure of your relationship is actually your readiness to forgive. Because love will always be imperfect. The measure of your family. And let's talk Christian family chapel. Life in your family group, life in your friendships, life in your relationships. Hey, it's a call to love because love's the perfect bond of unity. But all of us fall short of loving. And so the real test will be when we fall short, will there be forgiveness on the table? So what, what are we talking about when we forgive? To forgive is to release from a debt. Very simple definition. Uh, when we sin against someone, uh, we're in debt to them. We did not love them the way we were supposed to. We did not serve them the way we were supposed to. We're not patient with them the way we were to be patient with them. And, and so there's a debt but to forgive is to release from a debt. So that's what we're talking about, to release one another from a debt. But here is, here's the core principle. It's not hard, it's very direct, but, but I don't want, sometimes it gets lost in the midst of everything. And I want us to grab hold of, when, when you walk out today, we're finished today, that you would go, there's one thing I must always remember. This is the core principle of forgiveness. Just as the Lord forgave you, this was our text, so also should you. That's the, uh, there are myriads of situations and circumstances that I get asked about in marriage, in family, at work, and there's these questions of regarding, should I forgive and how should I forgive and what's it mean to forgive and when should I forgive? And sometimes the working of that out can feel very, very difficult. So here's the grit. As you've been forgiven, forgive. And I think that will bring tremendous clarity to all of our circumstances. As I've been forgiven, forgive. Give you uh, an example of what it means to forgive as you have been forgiven from the life of Jesus in relationship with his disciples. Jesus is teaching them about forgiveness, and they ask this question about forgiveness. Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? 
Now, do you think he's shooting low or high here? Does it, does, do you think that he's going, wow, that would be awesome or would that be a minimum? Yeah, I think he thinks that would be fantastic. My brother sins against me seven times and I forgive him seven times. Now, again, keep this real. You may go, uh, Peter could have said, Lord, how often is my wife going to sin against me and shall I forgive her? He's a smart man, kept his wife out of it and made it his brother. <laughs> Yeah. Up to seven times? I don't say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And what do every one of us do? Figure, do the math. We do the math. <laughs> what? 70 times? 490? So you think Jesus is really going, hey, you, you know, like your gas gauge turns yellow when you get low. When you hit like 450, you ought to give a person like, you're getting close, it's getting low. You better space it out here. What's he mean when he says 70 times seven? I don't think this is hard to figure out. What's he mean? I think he's saying, uh, forgive more times than you keep then you can keep count. Look, look, if you know your spouse has sinned against you 476 times, you've got real problems. <laughs> Seriously. And you know, it's not them, it's you. If you're, if you're counting like that, God bless them. More times than you can count. All right, so let's run that through the grid of what's our core principle about forgiveness? Forgive as we have been forgiven. All right, so how many times, count them up, how many times has the Lord forgiven you? Uh, see where this is going? You can't count. If you can keep count of the number of times the Lord has forgiven you, then you can keep count for others. But if you can't, then I can't. You see what I'm saying? This is why I think the core principle is, oh, well, I don't think, it's what the scripture says, core grid to run every forgiveness question through. Because this is a real one. I've been asking this a lot. How many times should I forgive him? We forgive as we have been forgiven. So here's what I'd like us to do. We're gonna look at seven scriptures pretty quickly, that describe what God has done for us when he forgives us, right? Because the principle is as we've been forgiven, we forgive. So as we see how God has forgiven us, it will, I think, lay the foundation for understanding how we forgive others without keeping count. All right, first text uh, that... We'll look at Colossians 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. So we were still dead, but he forgave us all our transgressions. How? Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. Okay, what the world does that mean? 
It simply means that if we were to visualize a scroll of all the decrees that we have broken, of all the commands that we have broken and all the commands that we have not done, sins of omission and sins of commission, if there was like a long scroll of all of these, guilty, 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 That'd be hostile to us. It says he has forgiven us. All of them, how? By having taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Meaning, can I have your eyes? That the death of Jesus was not just a horrible physical death. The core of the, heart of the cross of Jesus was on the cross. Jesus, who was without sin took the punishment for all of my sin, past, present, future, all of your sin, past, present, future. He took the punishment for it that was hostile to or toward me and toward you that, that pronounced us guilty, and he, he took it. He paid the debt. So, we forgive as we have been forgiven. As God has removed the certificate of debt against me. Here's what forgiveness is. I'll no longer make you pay for your sin against me. How have I been forgiven? By not, at core it means that I have not paid for my guilt. To forgive someone is not to excuse their sin. It's to not make them pay for their sin. I think most of us are good for like 90%. You know what I mean by that? In other words, well, maybe... We don't want them to have to pay in full, but we don't have to pay them. They have to pay a little. You know why we want people to pay a little? Because we think it'll keep them from not doing it again, right? We're going we're gonna to forgive, but we still want the pound of flesh. Or maybe we'll go, no, we're only going to forgive 10%. But you see, there's, he paid our debt in full. So when I forgive, I'm saying you ought to pay but I should have paid and I didn't. So I won't make you. It's to do for others. Now eternally I can't do that for them before the Lord but I can do that this horizontally. Right? I could make you pay, get needing you back, but I won't. Because that's what God has done for me. Second passage. I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Now again, 
Lots of folks go, what do you mean, God? How could he not remember? He, he knows everything. Yeah, it doesn't say he forgets. And so God doesn't forget my sins. And so I would never say to someone, oh, just forget about it. <laughs> when someone sins against you, very difficult to forget about it. God doesn't forget. What does he do? He remembers no more. Because God remembers my sin no more. This will be the discipline of the mind. I will choose to no longer recall how you've sinned against me. It is a discipline of the mind. I think you'll connect to this. You can't help the first thought. You often can't help the first thought. Circumstance, the time of year, seeing something brings to your mind. You didn't forget it. It brings to your mind. Oh, Christmas may bring to your mind a wound. But when it comes to your mind, then you're going to make a decision. I'm going to hold on to it. I'm going to go, no, as God remembers mine no more, I'm not going to focus on it. I'm not going to dwell on it. I'm not going to hold on to it. I'm going to choose to not think on it. It's a a reality of our flesh. I know this about me. I can imagine this is true for you. It's a reality of our flesh that sometimes we, we make ourselves feel better, maybe justify ourselves. I'm not sure always the reason why, but we will continually replay the way the person, what they said, what they said, that said and you'll bring it back and you'll play it again. You'll think about it again. you'll keep thinking about it. If I've forgiven, I'm going to forgive as I've been forgiven. I'm going to choose to remember no more. So the first thought, I may not be able to help. I may be, but I may not be able to help that first thought. It's what I do with the second thought of, Lord, You've remembered mine no more. I'm not going to dwell on that anymore. It's a discipline of the mind of forgiveness. Third text. It is you who has kept my soul from the pit of nothingness. For you have cast all my sins. Where? <laughs> not in front of him. He cast it behind his back. What's, what's kind of the visual there? If it's behind his back, he... He can't see it. As God has placed his sin behind his back, I'll no longer place your sin in front of you. He put it back here so that it's no longer between us. And these are, these are very similar. Don't, 
If you're like, well, what's the difference? Don't get so lost in what's the unique difference as the different pictures, the images that we get of God's forgiveness that actually helps us when we are seeking to live in relationship with one another and forgiving those who have sinned against us. That I'm going to put it behind my back. I'm not going to bring it up and put it in front of us. I'm not going to bring it back and put it between us. It's been taken out of the way. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. I think the image here, the depths of the sea is placing it out of reach. In other words, one of the greatest ways to protect ourselves from doing what we're inclined to do, and that is to put it back in front of us, to continually to bring it back up, is to say, no, I'm putting it out of reach. As God has placed my sin out of reach, I will place your sin out of reach, so I will no longer use against you. God has thrown my sin to the bottom of the sea. I'll not keep your sin within reach to use against me. I should have brought up with me, honestly, a shoebox of rocks. It's really easy to begin to carry around a, a shoebox of invisible rocks. In other words, they're the rocks that people have thrown at you. They've hurt you, they've wounded you. And we think by putting them in the box and not throwing them back, we've forgiven. But it's just a matter of time. We have them in our box. And we're going to save them for the time where we feel like, oh, now you deserve. Or now you've gone too far. Or manipulative. I want something from you. So I'm going to take out what you did against me. I'm going to use it to either get you back or to get what I want. See that shoebox of rocks that we feel like, no, I've forgiven, but we haven't forgiven. We just haven't gotten back yet. And we're waiting to get the most bang for our buck. And the picture here is, I'm not going to hold on to this against my spouse against a family member. I'm going to put it out of reach. I'm not going to take it to the Christmas party this year. And I'm not going to wait for the conversation around the table to just zing a rock across the table. Can, can in our flesh we be that calculated? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And these, these are, remember, the core grid. What's our core grid? Forgive as... We've been forgiven. So 
what? I'm not going to bring it up. I'm not going to use it against you. I'm not going to recall on it. So I'm going to put it out of reach. And all of us can relate to this. We feel like we've forgiven or we think we've forgiven and we're tempted and we go, no, forgiveness means I'm not going to reach down and use it again. God doesn't do that for me. He doesn't reach down and take my sin and, and bring it back and rub it in my face. And so, as I've been forgiven, I want to forgive. Can you see? See, I, I love this picture because this is about relationships. And at core, that's who we are. Christians are people of relationships, people of a relationship with God that has radically changed how we relate to one another. And so we, we seek to love as we've been loved because love is the perfect bond of unity. It's the perfect bond of unity in marriage. It's the perfect bond of unity in family. It's the perfect bond of unity in the church. And it, would be, it will be the perfect bond of unity for all who are in heaven. These three remain. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love because it's never, it's never gone out of date. Love is the greatest, but love fails. And so, friends, you're either going to continue to live in brokenness or you're going to go, I'm going to forgive as I've been forgiven. I'm not going to bring it back up. I'm not going to throw a stone. I'm not going to make them pay. I'm not going to hold it against them. I'm going to release it. Almost always is this then, yeah, but they've never apologized. They've never admitted they were wrong. So let me take us here. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were, before we apologized, when we were enemies, Christ died for us. As God demonstrated his love for me before I confess my sin, I'll demonstrate love to you before you confess your sin. You, you, get what, you get what's at core here? It's this whole idea of, I will love you when, I, when you prove you are worthy of it. I'll love you when you have proved that you're sorry enough for what you did that's caused me to stop loving you. God demonstrates his love for us and while we were yet sinners, while we were totally unworthy. Christ died for us. Practically, um, as a newly married man, I had this idea in my head 
wrongly that, that when the scripture says, don't let the sun go down on your angers, that if there was ever any brokenness between Jackie and I, we needed to resolve it that night before we could go to bed. The problem was it often started when we were already in bed and we were trying to go to sleep and then the light came on and it just deteriorated. Somebody needed to say to me, so let me say it to you, two o'clock in the morning is not a good time to try to resolve things. You are not in your best mind at two o'clock in the morning. But I had in this idea, don't let the sun go. Don't let the sun go down is not like, well, the sun had already gone down. We actually had 24 hours. We should have just waited. What's the point of don't let the sun go down? Don't let it, don't let it linger. Just don't let it go. You know, just don't sweep it under the carpet. The idea is to, to deal with it. But it'd be two o'clock in the morning. Jackie'd be in the bedroom and I'd be in the, living room, thinking, I'm not apologizing first this time. <laughs> I did last time, not this time. It's her turn. Seriously. And then what? The little whisper of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. God demonstrated his law. Christ went first. You're Christ in the marriage. Yeah. Really, and just, yeah, but, yeah, but. She's got responsibility. And if she were up here, trust me, she could replay her reasons while she was staying in there. Ultimately, We're not going to love one another perfectly. So what's going to happen? There's going to be brokenness. And somebody's got to go first. God demonstrated his love for us and while we were yet sinners. Somebody's got to go first towards restoring the brokenness. So, if the grid is, no, not if, since the grid is love, forgive as you've been forgiven, love as you've been loved. I'm going to demonstrate love before you confess your sin, even if you never confess your sin. We have an advocate before the Father. Jesus Christ, the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world, 1 John 2, 2. So, it's this, I'm going to go first. I'm going to go first. Because that's what God did for me. I'm going to go first. We might not do it at two o'clock in the morning. We might wait till tomorrow morning. Because <clears throat> what, what we ultimately learned, this is a little off, but what we ultimately learned was the things that were huge at 2 a.m. were not that big at eight o'clock. Suddenly, a little sleep and a little time right-sized things. 
So I'm not saying sweep it under the carpet. I'm saying I don't think it's a literal, you, have, you can't go to sleep until you resolve it. It needs to be resolved. And how's it going to get resolved? By somebody going first. This one may seem a little unusual, so let me unpack it for you. I say walk by the Spirit and you'll not carry out the desire of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit and you'll not carry out the desire of the flesh. In other words, watch. When when God has paid my penalty through the sending of his son and he has taken it out of the way, I am fully forgiven, watch, I am fully forgiven, yet I still have fleshly sinful desires. And and they will be a part of my life until that presence of sin is removed for all eternity. So forgiveness, fully forgiven, has actually, God to me, has not actually removed all the effects of my sin. The Spirit of God is in me, but I still have a fleshly desire. Here's my point. As God's forgiveness of me, don't write it down yet, just make sure you understand. As God's forgiveness of me has not removed all the effects of sin, because I'm switching the sides here. I'm not, not only from being the forgiving, but being forgiven. I know that your forgiveness of me, see, we switch sides. It's not me forgiving, but me being forgiven. I know that your forgiveness of me does not mean the removal of all consequences. That's not a shrinking back from what forgiveness means. It's an application of we forgive as we are forgiven. And God has fully paid the penalty for my sin, but I still live with some of the effects of sin in my life and that my sin nature wars against my, the Holy Spirit in me. And there is forgiveness on a horizontal level that really does consider the debt paid and puts it out of reach. But the reality is there's consequences. Give you a couple quick examples. First, a friend of mine in Pennsylvania years ago, working late, working nights, driving home after working all night, fell asleep in his work truck and hit an Amish buggy, because we grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, hit an Amish buggy and killed a little Amish girl. He was just shattered. He wasn't drunk. He wasn't, he, he worked and he fell asleep. He got charged with vehicular manslaughter. The Amish family invited him and his entire family to their house, fed him a meal and said, we forgive you. Powerful expression of forgiveness. But he couldn't drive for a year. See, he couldn't go to the DMV and say, hey, 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 they forgive me. Give me back my license. There's reality that there are times there are consequences 
exist. And, and we can become, as the ones forgiven, demanding of others that you said you forgave me. You can't have any consequences. Sometimes there are consequences. So when a spouse is unfaithful, if a man is unfaithful to his wife, and she does what many women would say, man, I can't imagine doing this. She forgives him. Says, I want the relationship to continue. And then he expects that, oh, well, you forgave me. Then trust should be as it always has been. That's, that's just not possible. Trust has been broken. Now, she, she can't say, I'll never trust you. What can she say? I need to learn to trust you again. You see what I'm saying? That's not withholding forgiveness. It's acknowledging that forgiveness breaks and, and there are effects. There's still remaining effects in humanity because of the sin of mankind. So we don't pile on consequences. We're not trying to make people pay. This is the, the fine line. I'm not trying to make a person pay. But I don't expect that all consequences would be removed. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. And Jesus was saying, hanging on the cross, hanging on the cross, innocent man, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As Jesus asked the Father to forgive those who crucified him, I'm going to ask God to bless you, not curse you. What I'm getting at here is simply this. We started it with, with Romans 5.8, but to understand, I'm always asked, can I, can, can I forgive someone if they've never confessed? <laughs> Listen carefully. Forgiveness is a transaction. So can you forgive them? Yes. Can they be forgiven? only when they receive it. But I can certainly offer forgiveness long before they ask for it. I think that's how I've been forgiven. I've been offered forgiveness. That doesn't mean, listen, that doesn't mean you go to this person who sinned against you and they've never confessed or never said anything they're sorry and you say, hey, I forgive you. Because they're like, I don't want your forgiveness but you forgive them. In other words, you release them from the debt. You don't hold that chain in your own heart. You do what Jesus does here, and he says, Father, forgive them. And when there's confession, that forgiveness can be accomplished. But otherwise, do you understand? Your freedom is based on their obedience. And I don't think it has to be. Your freedom from their sin against you is not based on their obedience. It's based on your readiness to forgive as you have been forgiven. Theirs awaits their confession. So the scripture tells us, and we're going to take the elements of the Lord's Supper now. Scripture tells us that we remember what God has done for us through the cross and there's going to be a plate that's passed 
that has unleavened cracker in it. Maybe I could get one up here then. Thanks. I got you here today. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. You're going to receive an unleavened cracker. It's a reminder of the, the broken body of Jesus. In the cup, reminder of the blood of Christ. We take these not to be forgiven, but to remember how we have been forgiven. That he took our penalty. And the scripture says as we do this, we should examine our hearts. So I'm going to ask you to examine your heart as we wait to prepare Don't just sit there. Ask yourself, invite the Holy Spirit. That's what I want you to hear me clearly say. Invite the Holy Spirit in these quiet moments to answer this question in your heart. Am I forgiving as I have been forgiven? Any way in which I'm withholding. And whatever the Lord by his spirit brings to your mind, thank him for what he's done for you. And invite him to turn your heart to do for others. Let's take some quiet moments.
Lord Jesus, we invite you in to every single one of our relationships. So I listened to your spirit. I was reminded that there's not a single relationship that I can exclude from this. So Lord, I ask that you would grow us as your children to be forgiving as we have been forgiven. That it would be a reflection of the depth of your love and kindness to us. Yes, Lord. That where our pride is tripping us up, that you would grant us humility of heart. Where we are arguing in our heads with what we think versus what you say, would we submit to your will? trusting you that that to forgive is to be like you. So we thank you as we hold these elements in our hand. You have set us free. Free not only from the penalty of sin, but free to love. We take now with gratitude and humility. Let's take together the bread and the cup. Would you stand with me? forgiven our chains as the picture of the scripture our chains are gone we've been set free we're no longer a slave to sin we're set free and in the same way I want you to understand that when we forgive we're also set free because sometimes our our unwillingness to forgive is actually punishing us as much or more then it's punishing somebody else. So either way, when we're forgiven and when we forgive, our chains are gone. So let's declare that together. Chains are gone, I've been set free. My God, my Savior is ransomed. chains are gone I've been set free my God my Savior has ransomed me and like a flood His mercy reigns unending 
by our time together. I hope that's the same for you. If we can pray for you in any way, we have men and women between auditoriums that are there to pray for you. Hey, let's go in the love that God has shown us. Let's freely give it to others. God bless. We'll see you next time. See you Christmas Eve.